question. This is an answer question. Um, when was the last time, what was the last room you walked into where you didn't know anyone um, and had to get to know some people? Birthday party yesterday, not all the people were super. Okay, so a birthday party, didn't know all the parents, had to get to know them. Yeah. Anyone else? Last time you walked into a room, you didn't know people. Hmm? Here, in this room. How many? That's the thing that came to mind. I walked into Water City, and I didn't know anybody. couple. Just you, apparently. <laughs> Only you. And not your wife. Yeah, you should have waited for her instead of rushing out of the car. So, <laughs> yeah. Work convention, sitting at tables, lots and lots of people not knowing. Yeah. Anyone, your hands are getting clammy just right now as I'm talking about getting to know people that you don't know, that you had to get to know, that you, whatever. Okay, someone else. Every new semester in a classroom. Yep. Definitely. You have anyone else who can relate? You've done everything possible in life to avoid walking into rooms where you don't know people. Right. Okay. So there's all kinds of um, strategies. And maybe maybe you're just naturally like you walk in and just who's here that I get to meet? Um, but maybe you're a bit more like, who's going to be there and what do I do? And, and if that's you, maybe you know, like you walk into a room and like you're looking for the one wearing the Packers something because you know I could talk to them because we have something in common or something I can make fun of, right? And uh, uh, Or maybe it's they've got outdoor stuff they're wearing or hiking boots, like, oh, I like those boots or whatever. Um, uh and you know that maybe that's your people. Or if it's a wide range of age in the room, you kind of look for somebody that's maybe around your age or whatever. But um, and, Or others, you're like, I just, I don't do this. And you said, it's too many risks. It's too many opportunities to make a fool of yourself. Can I just say this? And, and you know this, but um, we need to hear it. There's nobody else thinking about all of the things you said wrong when you're in a social setting. That is the internal narrative that we tell ourselves that actually is a buffer between us and being vulnerable to get to know others. And so I can tell you stupid things that I said out loud when I was 14 years old in this specific classroom or whatever. And you can do the same. And you know what? No one else can. No one else can. And so for those of us who have that little bit of like, I'm going to say the wrong thing or I'm going to start off on the wrong foot or I'm a whatever, um, I don't know scientifically if this is true, but anecdotally, I hear this all the time. When we stumble over ourselves, that we let others kind of enter in and be comfortable themselves because we are all so worried about saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, burping at the wrong moment, all that stuff, <laughs> Right? So, or coughing on cue. So that's good. So, um, so okay. Now, 
You might be thinking, like, uh, what does this actually have to do with anything, Jay? And how does this connect? So this morning, um, let's just get right into this. This is um, from the from John Walton's book, The Bible Story Handbook. He begins, he says, everyone has a story. Our lives are a collection of stories that we share with others to tell people who we are. Our stories concern our past, our present, our future. When we first meet other people, we communicate a part of our story to begin to get to know one another. As we become better acquainted, we tell more and more of our story and we hear more and more of our friends' stories. When deep relationships develop, we want to learn every detail of the story of the one who means so much to us. For Through this process, we grow to know him or her intimately. When asked whether we know a particular person, we demonstrate our knowledge by identifying something of that person's story. It might be, yeah, he's from Montana, or she works in that law firm down the street. We know people and are known by them through stories. So that's one of the great things about, as a church, we've said one of our core values is story. Not just my story that I get to spill off on you week after week, but your stories, the way you share them, your things that you've struggled with, the things that you are struggling with, the things that you've doubted, the things that you've found answers in, the things that you've found hope in, the pain that you've experienced, the whole gamut of emotions. I know in church world we talk about that in ways, uh, but in oftentimes we live it in a different way. We only talk about the safe things. We only let people into the safe areas of our life. But if we're truly going to do life together, that doesn't just mean like you're always over at my house, which I love. I'll leave you alone and go to a different part of the house if I've had too much people. And if you know me, you hopefully won't be offended by that. But we don't just invite somebody over and then only stay in the front room, right? It's a select number of people who get to be so connected with you that they get to experience the whole of your house, even up into you know, the upstairs back corner closet or whatever. But for sure, if you, a good host is probably going to have groups and eventually you make your way into the kitchen, right? The gathering place of everything. And there's a little bit of that way in getting to know each other. That In telling of our stories, it's a way of drawing people in and getting to know them and them getting to know us. And Which is great, Jay. What does this actually have to do with anything that is the way of Jesus that we've been looking at? I mean, in a way, this is a tip for making friends. So if you struggle in this, here's just a secret. Get to know people through their stories. What are you into? Like a great just social thing, as we all know, is look, what are you into? And if you can find what someone is into and get them talking about it, oh, man, you're gold. Even if you are the most introverted person in the world, because you can just keep going, tell me more about that. Tell me more about that. Tell me more. And anyway, because we're all into something, even if it's just stamp collecting, which is not a just, right? So, okay. Uh, let's see. So, but there's this thing about telling stories. Telling stories and listening to stories. And 
We get to know each other that way, and we know this instinctually, but we don't always do it rightly. Last night, we were ending, winding down the night at the Fiedler house, and Ruby was out there, and Nolan was out there. Amy and I, we were around our little bonfire in the backyard, and Ruby goes, Dad, tell, tell me a story. And we, and I, you get to know each other through stories, all this. And so in a great moment of parenting success, I go, honey, I'm really tired. No. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually didn't even tell her story. And she was just like, oh, okay. <laughs> so that happened. And you do it and I do it. The good news is, though, is those people in our lives, Ruby wasn't like, went in the house, papped up her hobo, hobo bag, and left. She will ask me again tonight, probably at a bonfire, and it's a chance to do it right then. This thing of stories is super important. John Walton goes on. He says, God also has a story found in the Bible, which he has made by which he has made himself known to us. If we want to know God fully and intimately, we will immerse ourselves in his story. If we want to lead others to knowledge of God, we will tell them God's stories. By knowing God's story, we come to know what he is really like and how we might expect him to act. As an intimate companion, we want to hear every part of the story again and again and again. So we've been spending these weeks slowly going through this life that we are invited by God to live that we're just calling the way of Jesus. These four areas of healthy growth, you know them. We've talked about prayer. We are right now talking about scripture. Next week, we're going to talk about uh, potpourri. We'll see. It's either going to be talking about community, gathering together, or we're going to talk about serving. But either way, those are interconnected. And so the way of Jesus is a lot of things. But at its core, follower of Christ, for you to grow in faith, to know him, to live out this life, it is a life of prayer, it's a life of scripture, it's a life of gathering, and it's a life of serving. And if one of those four areas is, um, anyone seen the movie Lady in the Water? the M. Night Shyamalan movie, a couple of us. Okay, it's an awesome movie if you don't expect too much out of it. Because, <laughs> no, that's, uh, right? So the movie came about, it's actually a story that he would tell his kids night after night that kind of grew into, it was an end of the day uh, bedtime story. And so Shyamalan would uh, tell this, and then at some point he realized there's something in this. Or he realized, I'm on contract to make another movie. Let's do it out of this. One or the other. And so this bedtime story became a movie. And in this movie, he plays with all the different archetypes that are in stories and myth and all of that kind of thing. And don't worry, I'm not going to say science is myth. But um, myth and archetypes and all the kinds of stuff. But in the movie, there's this one dude, and, and it's, it's, well, whatever. It's been out for 20 years, if you haven't seen it now. There's one guy who, um, he only works out one arm. I don't even remember what my point was now. <laughs> Stink. Yeah, that was it. So if you are, 
Yeah, nice. Very good. So um, if you are off kilter, off balance, over flexing one of these four areas, you're like the dude in Lady in the Water who only works out one arm. And he looked ridiculous. And the same's true in our life. It's very easy to focus in on just one of these things. Some people, and there're not a lot of them, but some people spend their whole life in in getting away from others and praying. And actually, if you're looking for a good summer read, there's a book called How the Irish Saved Civilization by Thomas Cahill. And in that book, uh, there's a lot of really cool things going on. But in that book, there's stories of how followers of Christ during the Dark Ages would remove themselves from what was going on in the world around them. And some of them even getting into boats and like going as far away from civilization as they could and setting up a place to live on islands. And um, one of those islands made it into the new Star Wars trilogy, actually, Skellig Michael, where there are, hmm? yeah, where there's, uh, anyway, whatever, I'm using my own time. That was off balance. Because, see, in getting away from others, even if it's getting away from others and then it's just spending all your time in prayer, and it wasn't just during the Dark Ages. There were church fathers, desert fathers who did this. They removed themselves. And if you wanted to come and talk to them, you had to come to them. And some of them lived on poles in the desert. I mean, it was just weirdness. See, follower of Christ, if you're going to be not just a well-balanced, but if you're going to be the person he created you to be, you're going to be a person of prayer. You are going to be in communication with God, which is the weirdest of all of the four, because it can feel like you're just talking to nothing. But it's not. It's not at all. And actually, we could pass the mic Talk about different times where you have found yourself in moments of prayer and God has met you in that space. Not in a way that you've convinced yourself that he's met you there, but he's met you there in a way that's undescribable and yet overwhelming. And so this this way of Jesus that we're talking about, the rewind all the way back to the intro on this is we live in a culture that is feeding us, feeding us, feeding us a narrative that anything that is transcendent, anything that has mystery, anything that has depth beyond what you can taste, touch, smell, is it's kind of kiddish. And so if you're really going to grow and mature and become, and you're going to move away from that stuff. And the stories, the stories, the stories that we get, the language, the news feed, it's all, all there is is right now what you could see, touch, taste, and smell. And the longer we soak in that story, the longer we live in that narrative, the easier it is for us to become disenchanted. The easier it is for us to lose that sense of awe and wonder in mystery. And you know what? This morning as we're talking about the Bible, the biggest uh, struggle I had this week, and actually the last two weeks in looking at this, is we're not going to talk about any Bible reading techniques. We're not going to talk about how to interpret the Bible. We're not going to talk about context, history, genre, 
None of the nerd stuff are we going to talk about this morning, and that is intentional. It's not just because we don't have time. It's not because I'd really like to have a cup of coffee with you on Thursday and talk about that stuff. It's not because we're trying to sell a book. It's because we are addicted to the technique without letting the Word of God penetrate who we are and change who we are. And so the point of the Bible is not the Bible. The point of the Bible is not the Bible. Sorry, Martin Luther. But actually, Martin Luther didn't think the point of the Bible was the Bible. People who have elevated the Bible to actually, in some instances, a place of idolatry. If you've ever fought about which translation is the right translation, I think God would rather have you be excited about encountering him than trying to know if these and those are the right things over uh, dudes and dudettes. We all can slip into that, myself very much included. And so this morning, none of that. And if you were hoping for that, I would have been also this morning is about something different. So the Bible is a lot of things. One voice in my head says, better talk about what the Bible is, how we got the Bible, the process of putting the Bible together, this collection of sacred writings that were written over 2,500 years, almost 2,000 years ago. And half of the room's eyes glaze over. And the other half of the room like leans in. Yeah, let's talk about that, the Council of Another voice says, talk about how the Bible is different from all the other religious books that are out there. The Quran, the Book of Mormon, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, whatever it is. I didn't know if that would land. That's good. I love our room. See, part of me wants to like, this is why the Bible's different. But we're not going to talk about that either. See, there are a lot of spiritual books out there and there are a lot of books that aren't spiritual but because of disenchantment we've made spiritual how many people lost their minds on martin's like dragon books like then the hbo series and then the this gives me meaning and depth and there's there's this and there's that and it's we look for stuff or it's pray, read, eat. Or it's Jesus calling. If you read Jesus calling, great. Start with the Bible. Because he actually says things that we can read that he said. Not just what somebody else thinks he would say. But see, it's not that we can't devotionally come to the Bible. We should come to the Bible with ourselves in mind. We should, but see what happens is, is we are so conditioned to have God speak to my exact space and time, my zero hour or my, my coffee break on noon on Thursday or whatever, that we've lost the ability to just go, this is very strange to open this up, but I'm going to open it up and see what it says. And you know what? Sometimes you're going to open it up to see what it says, and it's going to say nothing to you. It's not going to talk to where you are. It's not going to give you hope for the moment. It's going to be confusing. It's going to be like, what? And you're going to be tempted to go somewhere else to find something else. 
You are not the center of the story when you open these pages. So the point of the Bible isn't the Bible, and the point of the Bible is not you. The point of the Bible is not me. I know it's, well, we don't even have to say any of those stuff. We've beat them to death. It's not life's little instruction book. It's not all of the things that cliched get said so that we feel like we're, we can approach the Bible a little better. The Bible is the weirdest book you're ever going to read in your life, right? It's full of stories that are like, what in the world? How is that even in there? Some dude lets his servant sleep outside and gets violated, and then he chops her up and sends her all over the pieces so that people will come and do something about that? How is that even like a story, number one? We would ban that book. And then number two, how is that how God moved his story forward? That's weird. Or a plethora of other things that are in here that when somebody is new to faith, we kind of hope we stay away, they stay away from and then they come up and they're like, um, I was reading. <laughs> and you're like, mm, yep, that's there. And it's not that we're embarrassed that it's there. Because it's there for a reason. But in the same way you can walk into Menards, if you hope if you're no good at woodworking, you're going to kind of get the basics first. But really, what everyone wants is the bandsaw, and you know they're going to lose a finger or two. We do that with Scripture as well. So if you're not going to listen to anything, and you're looking for a thing, Jay, what do I do? Because I want you to tell me what to do. Read the book of Luke. And we've done that as a church. That was our last soak. Jay, I read the book of Luke. What do I do now? If you're new to this, read it again. And if you've been around this a long, long time, read it again. Your Luke's intended audience. You, not Jew. If you're Jewish, start in Matthew. But you're not. Start in Luke. And when you've got your head around the life and words and teaching of Jesus, not just what he said, not just the easy stuff, but man, the hard stuff. Then go into Acts, volume 2 of the book of Luke, and see how followers of Christ, just like you but with different fashion, tried to figure out how to live the life and teaching of Jesus from the book of Luke. And spend some time just going in between those spaces. But, Jay, I want to read Genesis, and I want to know if the flood's everywhere or if it's just an earth dam in Mesopotamia. Okay. But see, when we read Scripture, science isn't the point of the Bible either. There are a lot of things that we've overlaid on the Bible that we say, this is what the Bible speaks to. And it's not that it doesn't speak into those spaces, but if your science is shaped by the Bible, you're about three or 4,000 years too late. Because we know a lot more than Moses did when he was sitting looking. Did that mean what Moses wrote is untrue? Nope. God never found it necessary to move someone's scientific knowledge forward 
before revealing to them what he needed to reveal. Let me say it again. God never needed to move anyone's scientific knowledge forward before he revealed to them what he needed to reveal to them. And what did he need to reveal to him? Himself. And so I don't go to Genesis to learn science. I'm sorry, Ken. There aren't answers in Genesis. You weren't supposed to say that. We don't need to go to Tennessee to walk around in a great big Christian entertainment center that looks like an ark to know whether or not dinosaurs could fit inside. Not the point of the story. And see, Jay, get off your soapbox. It is... Remember in Princess Bride? We've all seen that one. The contraption they plug them into and they suck the life out of them. It's what we're doing to the Bible. And we're cranking it and we're letting more water come down and we're so excited about the little machine and we're sucking the life out of the story because we need 15 or 45 second bits on the radio station to give an answer for the last, I don't know how many years, and there's just actually not even that many words in those couple chapters. But the reoccurring theme on the beginning chapters of the Bible, and I know you're with me, but I just, I need to say this out loud or I'm going to lose my mind. It's God. I don't care how many days it was. You don't either. But we need to remind ourselves because sometimes it feels like, am, am I losing it? Am I the only one? You know this. You read Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was God, and God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was formless and without void. And we go, well, where was that? And the shaping of the tectonic plates and the whatever. Moses would have gone, what are you even talking about? Jay, where are you at in this? Well, page 2 of 5. <laughs> Here we go. Hebrews chapter 4, this isn't a proof text. We don't do this often. I'm sorry. Dig into the whole of chapter 4. We're going to hit some of these themes. But Hebrews chapter 4 of an author who we don't know that I really like to think is a lady. But we don't know who it is. The unknown author of Hebrews writes, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than than any double-edged sword. You could tell how I learned this. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. For the word of God is alive and active. The word of God is alive and active. Jay, what's the word of God? The word of God is a lot of things. The word of God is most clearly spoken to us through Scripture. The word of God is is a metaphor and it's a language that's used about a lot of things. Jesus himself is referred to as the word. Is Jesus a sword that cuts? Actually, yeah, kind of. But see, when we dissect and, and, um, and we, uh, yeah, when we dissect and we, we use the electron microscope to get down to the atomic level, when we atomize Scripture, 
we princess brides suck the life out of what is living and active. And we plop our Bibles and we think it's going to change us. The world is full of PhDs in theology on Old Testament, on New Testament, who have no connection with the living, active Word of God. And so the last thing I want any of us to do is walk away with a little bit more information this morning. It's the last thing I want to do. I'm never going to write a book, but if I wrote a book, each chapter is going to be titled something along the lines of who I would want to punch in the face. (laughs) When the church was not very old, I had somebody come in who was probably a superstar in their youth group, 20-something-year-old, stood in front of me with his really just little kind of girlfriend next to him, introduced himself. I'm a superstar in the church that I came from, which was a really small church. I was involved in the youth group. I was this, I was that, and this is my my girlfriend slash wife. And he's like, we, I'm like, what? That's weird. And he said, I, I, we got down on our knees before God and now we're married. I'm like, I don't think that's what the Bible says, and I don't think that's how it's done. And if you came home with my daughter and said that to me, I would punch you in the face. Chapter 1. <laughs> At this point, there's about four chapters in this book. The last chapter I'm working on right now is the one who wants to nerd out on Bible stuff and is not living any of it out. And that's probably a punch in my own face a lot of times. But see, I get too excited about listening to the latest podcast from my latest Bible nerds. And I don't get excited enough about going, how am I going to live this out? And so the way we keep from putting the Bible in the whatever torture machine from Princess Bride, there's probably a real term, It's living in the reality of this. The Word of God, Scripture, God's message to you, Jesus himself, all of it. It's living and active, and it divides. So if you're new to all of this and you're not quite sure about it, there are some stuff and some ways to do this right. Or if you're just looking for a book, One of these you probably have in your library if you've been around this for a while. One of these you probably don't. But Reading the Bible for Change by a professor out at Multnomah Seminary in Portland. It's a really good one. I actually, I was kind of thinking we were going to use a lot of this. Reading the Bible should start from and end with love for God. It's pretty good. And right in the intro, he goes through the attitudes that we should have when we come to the Bible. We should have an attitude of trust because God is trustworthy. His word is going to be trustworthy. We should have sincerity. We should have a sense of devotion and awe. We should have love for God. We should reflect on God. We should have a passion to know God. We should have patience because some of the things we need to learn are going to take a while. 
We should have an appreciation and a respect for the Bible. You ever talk to someone about the Bible and they just loathe it, and you're like, why are we even talking about this? And it should also be affected by prayerfulness. This is a good book. He says, no amount of advice on Bible reading techniques can compensate for hearts and minds that are not willing to humble, to humbly follow God. If you know more Bible than you're living out, I want to punch you in the face. Chapter 4. That'll be a book that'll never sell. You'll buy it. (laughs) You are buying it week after week. (laughs) I love this church. Thursday's throat punch. Yeah, oh, right, thanks. So Thursday, uh, coffee, new moon, because elsewhere is closed. Coffee at what time? Four? Four to five. We'll talk Bible. The others, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee. You push this on your students. I know you do. And then he's got How to Read the Bible Book by Book. And these are both great. If you want to, I'm going to just leave these out. And then the, the others, this Bible story handbook that we started with with Walton. It's 175 stories that John and his wife, Kim, dug into. And there's background info and things to avoid and whatever. I mean, I preach from this so many times. There's so much good stuff in this. And it's written for Sunday school teachers. So those are great. But where are we? Oh, we're cruising. For the word of God is active, alive, Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates, even dividing the soul from the spirit. Jay, what's that mean? I thought soul and spirit were the same. You're missing the point. It cuts you to the core of who you are. It judges thoughts and attitudes of the heart. See, this theme from Hebrews chapter 4 is don't hear the word of God and do nothing. In this chapter, the author quotes David from Psalm 95 and says, Today, if you hear his voice, his being God's, today, right now, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts. See, the temptation in our culture, not outside the church, but inside the church, is to go so far in on the Bible nerd that we want to talk about how the stones were quarried for the temple. I can still remember sitting in my Bible class early at North Central, and the professor started to talk about how they quarried the stones for the temple. And I went, this is amazing. Because they didn't have dynamite. And so how did they do it? And there's evidence of this, and they were probably quarried in this place. And and I was just like, this is amazing. And it is true, but I didn't walk out from that going, and now I need to love my roommate better. The point of the Bible is not to know the history of the ancient world. Jay, you've given us a lot of what it's not. The point of the Bible is this. It's to know God, and it's to rightly respond to God. What is the point of the Bible? The point of the Bible is to know God and to rightly respond to God. 
that you would know God most clearly revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. Begotten, not made. We looked at this on Wednesday night. Not a creature like you. God, full on, 100%, and fully human. That you would know Jesus, not because he's just the peak of spiritual teachers, but because he is God himself who came, we might have right relationship with God the Father, who actually died on a cross, who actually rose from the dead, who actually invites us to believe him and have that change everything. This week I saw a a bumper sticker that I see a lot. You've probably seen it too, Nature is My Church. Have you seen it? It's usually with a lot of other bumper stickers, lots of creative ones, good, great, colorful. You haven't seen it? It's good. It's a good one. Nature is my church. And see, some of us, there are these pieces where maybe you've been burned by the church or burned by a teacher who tortured the text. And you think to yourself, I'm just going to refresh and get out into nature. There's not a one of us, if we're not honest, will detox when we go out for a hike. But see, no sitting in the lake, no sitting in front of a tree, no pondering the vista of the mountain. Never once is that tree, that lake, or that mountain going to look at you and go, you need to forgive. Or you are full of pride. Or you have a heart of greed or lust. Not a once is nature going to look at you and go, you are not enough. You might feel small in nature. You might feel a sense of otherness. Scholar C.S. Lewis specifically talks about that is God's natural law in us. It's not a thing we learn from nature. It's something he's, he's drafted in us that we would respond even if we haven't quite been exposed to the good news yet. And so I'm not downplaying that sense of bigness that we get when we're in those spaces or that personal sense of smallness, but never, I don't care how long you sit down at Lake Winnebago, not a single one of those waves is going to roll up on you and say, forgive your kids. Not a one. So you know why nature is such a great church? Or you know why nature is such great sacred texts? Because it demands nothing of you. And so in fact, those things are actually churches and sacred texts of self. Can you meet God down in Kettle Moraine? Or in the Porkies? Or on Winnebago? Or at Rice Lake? Yes. There's not a place we can go that God is not. You know how you know that? The Bible tells you it. And so the role of Scripture in our lives is to know God and to respond rightly to God. Jay said, I can't go for a hike. It's not what I said. See, we read scripture to know God and to learn how to respond to him. And this is the story of God, not the story of Jason. It's where I find my place in God's story. Walton goes on. He says, God tells us his story so that we can understand him. 
He could simply have given us a doctrinal statement or a list of his attributes, but this would not have been sufficient. God is good, fine. But how does his goodness play out in specific situations? Does God's goodness mean that his actions will always seem good to me? If we had only a list of attributes, we would not have a very good idea of how these work out day by day. But stories, with these, we can see how God's qualities are demonstrated in perfect balance, governed by his wisdom and holiness in numerous situations. God tells his story through human authors. This is what we mean when we say the Bible is inspired, that it is God-breathed. The Bible is more than people giving us ideas about God. You have ideas about God. I have ideas about God. That doesn't make them scripture, and it doesn't always mean they're true. Your ideas about God are not always scripture and are not always true. Scripture is God's word telling us about himself. But Jay, can you twist that? Yeah, you can. And any time you torture the text to say something that wasn't originally intended, and that's the key, originally intended, you're torturing the text. The Bible is not something we master. The Bible is something that masters us. Follower of Christ, if you've read something and said, I don't think so, I don't know how much you're following Christ. And I say that to myself, and I say it in fear and trembling because we're all in process. We sang the song, Jesus is our sure anchor. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. The, the story of the church The story of Water City is people in process, moving close to God, moving away from God, in struggle, falling, getting up, being forgiven, grace, mercy, the whole nine yards of it. But when I read something and I say, I don't think so, I have very big concerns. And so, church, what did you read this week that demanded something of you and how did you respond to that? I have my own. This week I read stuff and it demanded things of me. It's to know God and know how to respond. Jay, you've actually not really used that much of the Bible this morning. Here we go. Psalm chapter 119. Let's do the whole thing. (laughs) that's the longest chapter in the whole Bible. We're not going to do the whole thing. Don't worry. But it's this beautiful chapter. It's this beautiful chapter because the psalmist is through prayer saying, this is who I am and this is my relationship to your word. The psalmist uses language of statutes, precepts, law. Don't get lost in that. The psalmist is saying, God, your ways, your word, your scripture, your law, that is life to me. Help me live that. So to 
just make sure we're all equally on not the same footing from the message. This is Psalm 119, just a little bit of it. And just, okay, we don't do Bible nerding, but each one of these bits in Psalm 119, it's actually the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's A, B, C, D, E, F, and it was to help a lot of things, but one of the things it did do was it helped really young students begin to learn the Hebrew alphabet. It's beautiful, but nothing to do with us. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 9, how can a young person live a clean life? By carefully reading the map of your word, I'm single-minded in pursuit of you. Don't let me miss the road signs you've posted. I've banked your promises in the vault of my heart so I won't sin myself bankrupt. Be blessed, God. Train me in your ways of wise living. I'll transfer to my lips all the counsel that comes from your mouth. I delight far more in what you tell me about living than in gathering a pile of riches. I ponder every morsel of wisdom from you. I attentively watch how you've done it. I relish everything you've told me of life. I won't forget a word of it. The whole of Psalm 119 is a prayer of the writer sitting with God and saying, help me to live this, to really live this. Help me to get this into the deep places of my life, what I truly live out. It's a changing of the way we see things, the way we hear things, in the deep places of our hearts and our minds and even our imaginations. Without this, we're drawn to other things and trying to connect with God. When our deepest self is not connecting, when we are reading Scripture, we are drawn to other things. Mike Cosper, last thoughts, says, I think much of our hunger for spectacle and hype, that's hashtag not a good thing, comes from our lack of imagination. To find ourselves captivated by the Christian life and captivated by scriptures requires an active mind and an engaged imagination. It's the imagination that brings this world to life, which is why the world is insanely in love with the chosen right now. Someone's imagination is helping others engage the story imaginatively. Is the chosen the Bible? No. No. But it can help kickstart your imagination. And I know in church world, imagination is like, is that good or bad? It's not good. I think it's not good. Imagination, God made it. You can't engage these stories without the imagination. Otherwise, you're atomizing the Bible. You're dissecting. You are princess bride sucking the life out of. I asked Espen right before church because I wanted to get this right because this has been a thing that he's shared with in different contexts and settings, and I loved it, and talking about different elements. But see, so often we think of, I just need more knowledge or more intellectual knowing. 
If I can just get them to intellectually know this thing, then they'll turn their life away from the, the addiction to the drinking or to the fill-in-the-blank. But Aspen helped me have language for this. He said, intellectual knowledge only changes us intellectually. We are changed deeply in the places that actually affect our living life through experiences. Get it? Got it. See, and that's why we tell stories. Ruby doesn't want me to just jabber at the bonfire. She wants to be shaped in who she is as a member of this family by hearing a story of dad that helps her understand and see who dad is, but then who the family is. Isn't it awesome that God did not give us just bullet points? The Bible is 33% poetry. I'm going to get this wrong now. Shoot, I should have wrote it down. Yeah. Okay, we'll do it this way. The Bible is 43% story. It's split the math to 30 and 30, poetry and didactic or teaching. The Bible is not the majority of, but the biggest portion of the Bible is story. History, narrative, myth, whatever. Why? Well, I think it's kind of because God wants us to experience this so that we can be changed. And so we gather together and we tell our stories to each other. Why do some people not experience change? Maybe it's because they're not honest in their storytelling. And am I willing to come into the Bible and the story? If you want to dry me up as a teacher, say, Jay, let's take the next five years and only teach the epistles. Let's only do the letters of Paul. Here's my resignation. We have to have story. Why? Because we're changed through experiencing it. And the beauty of this is that it invites us down into it. So what should we do? How about the book of Luke? You could read in that. A lot of good story. Then do the book of Acts. But Jay, when I go to the Bible, I don't really know if I'm reading it right. Okay, here's your one second bit of nerdness. A good help, if you're looking at reading the Bible, is the Bible Project has a visual commentary on each book of the Bible. There's a lot of extra like amazingness in there. But that completed now, visual commentary on the Bible. If you're going to do the book of Luke, YouTube, Bible Project, book of Luke, and you'll get a five-minute overarching view of Luke. And then you'll be aware of some of the themes that author Luke was playing with and some of the context that was going on and whatever. That stuff does matter, but it's not the point. 
And so if you're new to this and you're checking this Bible stuff out and you're not quite sure, this is a great way to start. And then just start reading. And then have a journal open. And what are you seeing? And what are you noticing? And what are your questions? And then get coffee with somebody. And bring your journal in and your Bible in that you're writing all up. And then go, let's talk about this. You know, Jesus says you're supposed to love your neighbor. Do you know my neighbor has dogs and I don't really like my neighbor? What do you think he thinks? What do you think he's really saying I should do for my neighbor? Like, how do I really love them? Or Jesus is saying, and it's off to the races. And they're praying the Bible when we are processing it and journaling it that way. There is community with each other and the Bible when we are processing and doing it. When you are freeing up your time, veteran follower of Christ, with somebody who's new to this, you are serving others and hearing what they are processing. This is the way of Jesus. We're not, well, I don't know, I'm not going to say that. This is the way of Jesus. So how does this live out? I don't know. But I am super excited about thinking about you digging into the Bible with the big question of, God, what am I supposed to know about you right now? And how do I respond to this? It changes everything. Heavenly Father, thank you for this moment, this time. Thank you that we can get together to soak in this story. Psalm 119 isn't important because we know what day David wrote it. Psalm 119 is important because this is a prayer that all of us can find words for what we've felt in. And it's not only important because it's what is going on in my own life, God? This has been a, a prayer and a song that's resonated with your people since it was written. Why? Well, because you inspired it. God, I pray that we would continue to grow people, to, to become and to grow in people who are in love with you and who are in love with your word. but who are constantly inoculating ourselves to the, against the disease of more knowing without the living. And so, God, I pray that you would give us new eyes and new ears and a clean heart. God, help us to be people of movement in the places where you are calling us to move. Jesus, from the freshest, newest believer in this who's not quite sure about it, draw them in, give them a desire to be in there. And Lord, for those who've been around this for so long, they've been there, done that, bought the t-shirt, God, remind us, catch us off guard. Lord, we love you.